This morning we'd like to begin a new series of studies uh, in the book of Acts. And so would you please uh, open to Acts chapter 1 and stand with me and and read uh, verses 1 through 8 of the first chapter of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. And let us read aloud and let us read together. Verse 1. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, and being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Father, we thank you and bless you for your word. Anoint us now and fill us with your Holy Spirit. Grant us, Lord, your wisdom in your instruction in your word this day. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You all may be seated. We are embarking on a wonderful adventure today as we step into a book of New Testament Scripture that, from its inception, had no title attached to it. We call it the Book of Acts. Many Bibles label it as the Acts of the Apostles, as that is what it has been called since the middle of the second century A.D., What is interesting about that title is that as you go through the book, we find that most of the apostles are not named, and some are barely mentioned. Now Peter, of course, is prominent in the first part of the book, and Paul alone is prominent in the latter part of Acts. And for sure, the Holy Spirit is much more prominent than the apostles, The Spirit is referred to or mentioned 51 times in the book of Acts. And so many commentators would suggest that the better title for the book is the Acts of the Holy Spirit. But there is a slight problem with that thought, and uh, this should bring to mind that it, it does really matter what we title an untitled account. It does really matter what this book should be considered as. And so if we call it the book or we, if we call the book the Acts of the Apostles, well, the focus then, we would think, is on the Apostles. And if we call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit, the focus will be on the Spirit of God. Now, that's not a bad thing, 
But you have to consider this, and you must remember that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to focus attention on Jesus, not Himself, or on the disciples. In John chapter 15, Jesus Himself said in verses 26 and 27, He said, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, therefore this is the Holy Spirit He's speaking of, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will testify of Me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with Me from the beginning. In the next chapter, in John chapter 16, verse 13 and following, Jesus said, However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will tell you things to come. He will glorify Me. For He will take of what is Mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are Mine. Therefore I said that He will take of Mine and declare it to you. So Jesus makes it very clear then that the Holy Spirit is going to give testimony and witness to Jesus Christ. And not only that, but in the, in the, in the uh, account in, uh, in, in John 15, Jesus said the Spirit will testify and you will testify. And it is in the very first verse of the book of Acts, one that we just read a, a little while ago, that we can actually see this author's intention. This is, in fact, the intention of the author. It is to bring the focus to Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 1 it says, The former account or treatise I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach. And so if we needed to have a good title for this untitled book, we could then call it this. We could call it the continuing acts of the risen Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit through the church. Did you write that down at the beginning? That's the title of the book. Because Jesus is to be the focus of the book of Acts. Now the author, of course, is Luke. The former account or the former treatise that he speaks of is the Gospel of Luke. And the book of Acts being the bridge then between the Gospels and the letters to the church. And it is an important bridge. And it is an important thing for us to realize that the book of Acts is perfectly in the right place in the New Testament. It would be a very interesting thing if we didn't have this book of history of the beginnings of the church where it is after the Gospels and before the writings of the Apostles, especially the writings of Paul. Why? Because Paul is not mentioned in the, New Test in, in the, in the Gospels. And it would be strange for us to read the Gospels about Jesus and then all of a sudden be given the letters and ask the question, who is this Paul? Who is this person here? We don't even know anything about him. So the book of Acts finds itself in the very perfect place that God wants it to be for our understanding of the whole of the New Testament. Because then we begin to realize there were things that happened after Jesus ascended into heaven. The church began. The power of the Holy Spirit came just as Jesus said. The church is born. The church goes forth and begins to preach and, 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 and declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. Along the way, this man Paul comes into the picture whose name at one time was Saul of Tarsus. And, of course, 
we know the rest of the story. And that's why I call this message today the rest of the story. Because that's what it is. The rest of the story of what Jesus was continuing to do in the church. But before we go on, I want to mention to you that the book of Acts is designed to stimulate your hearts as believers in Jesus Christ. It is designed to stir you to remembrance that this book is, is incomplete without your testimony and without my testimony of what Jesus Christ can do and will do through the power of the Holy Spirit until the day of Jesus Christ's return. Folks, this isn't just another history lesson. This isn't just another book to learn history. It is a book that is filled with the power of God's Spirit as, as we know that it has been given for us to realize that God is still working today, that Jesus is still working today, that Jesus is still alive today in His body, the church. So let's be stimulated, let's be stirred to action. Let's realize that God is calling us to awaken to His work in us. The book of Acts hasn't been completed. We are still writing it. And we're still a part of it today. The former account, the Gospel of Luke, was written to someone named Theophilus. And the name itself means lover of God. Some have thought that maybe that, uh, that Luke was writing it really just to any person that's a, a lover of God. But uh, Luke mentions Theophilus in, in his uh, gospel in the very first chapter. Let me read that to you. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This is, this is important to get an understanding of this relationship between Luke and Theophilus and Theophilus and Luke. Luke begins his gospel by saying, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and Ministers of the Word delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. He writes him an orderly account and he calls him most excellent Theophilus. The fact that he is called the most excellent Theophilus helps us to know a little bit about him and his relationship to Luke and consequently the importance of this book to an individual. And I want to stress the importance of this book to an individual. Because the title most excellent was used often to address people of high office, position, or statue. But it was used more than anything else as a title for a Roman official. And so there are those who then believe that Theophilus was a, wealth, a wealthy Roman uh, of high stature, a wealthy Roman official, who may have been Luke's master. And the fact that Luke was a physician, and, and Paul points this out in, in Colossians 4, verse 14, when he writes, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greets you. But the fact that Luke was a physician, a physician indicates that Luke was actually a slave since only wealthy people could have their own physicians and physicians served only their masters. So those who were actually trained in, in, in that particular in, in, in area of medicine and all were, were certainly uh, intelligent and bright and all, but they 
didn't have their own clinics. or They belonged to wealthy people. The wealthy people had the doctors. The wealthy people had the physicians. So it is believed then that Luke was the servant of Theophilus. And it is believed that Theophilus was converted then to faith in Jesus Christ through the ministry of Luke. And because of this, Luke had the freedom then from his master to eventually travel with the Apostle Paul on some of his missionary journeys, which we'll certainly catch up with soon enough. But now all of this information is significant because we we have to believe that Luke wasn't writing as if he knew that millions of people would be reading his accounts. He wasn't writing the Gospel of Luke and, and then would eventually write the book of Acts as if to say, you know, someday millions and millions of people are going to know who I am. They're going to know what I knew. They're going to know what I wrote. And they're going to, you know, realize, boy, you know, this, this, boy, this is something to really kind of uh, uh, look forward to, you know, in my, in my own uh, legacy, I suppose. But that's not uh, the point. He wasn't writing this to millions of people when you think about it. For all he knew, he was writing to only one man, Theophilus. For all he knew, he was writing to one man. And think about this. He wrote eloquently, he wrote intelligently, he wrote intellectually, and he wrote painstakingly the things that pertain to Jesus Christ, which was our Lord's attitude and mentality as well. The fact that the Lord would single out one person was just as important as preaching to the multitudes. And this, this, uh, this account of, of, of Acts here, and, and also the Gospel of Luke, written to one man, that's the heart of the Lord. And to do it, not, 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 uh, not you know, get it out of the way. You know, I, I think of those people that today, you know, they just want audiences. They, they just want people that, you know, they, if they see a room of ten people, they say, well, that, I don't think, you know, you know they, they preach or they teach. And then they say, no, but I want more. I want more people to listen to what I have to say. And they disregard the one person that may need to know Jesus Christ. But in Matthew chapter 18, verses 11 and 12, Jesus Himself said, For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. And then He says, What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is strayed? The one was important to the Lord, just as much as the ninety-nine. Now in John chapter 4, we see Jesus meet up with a woman in Samaria. And, and I mentioned verse 7 here because it just gives us an indication of the fact that there was a woman of Samaria who came to draw water at this well. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. He begins a conversation with her. And he cares at that time only for this one woman. <laughs> and he speaks to her. In Luke chapter 19, verse 5, Jesus, and going through the city of Jericho, finds a man, a little short man, who couldn't see over the crowds, climb up into a tree. His name was Zacchaeus. Jesus cared about that one man. He had multitudes around him, but he cared to, about that one man. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up, he saw him, and he said, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. He cared about the one, as well as caring about the multitudes, but he cared about the one. And this, this is something that we need to understand. Can you imagine? Can you imagine two volumes of work 
for just one person. Two volumes of work. And by the way, it took us four years to go through the Gospel of Luke. We just finished it recently. But all of what we read, all of what we studied was written for one person. And then he goes on and he says, I've got more to say. The second volume, the book of Acts. You know, this should remind us of that one person ourselves, of that one person who we know is without Christ. What will we present to them? What will we give them as our testimony of what Jesus Christ can do in a life? And then he says to Theophilus, the former account I made, O Theophilus, the former account, the gospel, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. Of all that Jesus began. Luke saw the events of the person and work of Jesus Christ in the Gospels as only the beginning. The book of Acts describes its continuation, and as I've already implied, that work of Jesus continues to our present day. By the way, there there is an important pattern in this statement made by Luke. He says, of all that Jesus began to do and to teach, there's a pattern here that that we need to take hold of. The pattern is of doing before teaching. Doing should always come before teaching. Jesus did it. Of all that Jesus began to do and to teach. It is, a, it is a pattern. Ezra did it in Ezra chapter 7 verse 10. Talks about Ezra there. Preparing his heart to seek the law of the Lord. And to do it and to teach the statutes. It is a pattern that we need to take hold of. There's a great lesson let's say. For those of you who want to impact your children. With the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do the gospel before you teach it. Do it. Live it out. Live out the gospel. It's hard for kids to understand today if you're not living out the gospel, but then you're, you know, you're hitting them over the head with it. You need to be living out the gospel in your life. They need to see the love of Christ in your life. They need to see the truth of God in your life. Then you're able to teach it. The reason that many were astonished by Christ's doctrine and authority in Matthew chapter 7 was that Jesus didn't just teach the Word theoretically. He lived it out before them practically. See, it just astonished them. I mean, they heard His doctrine. They heard that He spoke with authority. But they were more astonished in the very fact that He lived it out. You see, Jesus was not a person who said, do as I say and not as I do. But too many of us in the church today will say that to other people. Do as I say, but not as I do. People then begin to see the, the, uh, <clears throat> the inconsistency there. And so what he says is, of all that Jesus began to do and to teach, both to do and to teach. James, the half-brother of Jesus, in his own letter, in James chapter 1, verse 22, would say, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. Be a doer of the word. Be a doer of the word. Now the Lord had done and taught His disciples many things prior to His death and resurrection, but, but there were further directions that he, that he wanted to give them after He rose from the dead. And so you see in verses 2 and 3 of Acts chapter 1, That Luke would say to Theophilus of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments 
to the apostles whom He had chosen, to whom He also presented Himself alive after His sufferings by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Jesus would continue to appear to His disciples on and off for a period of 40 days after His resurrection. And you know, we, we could all just kind of go back and look at the Gospels and, and, and you know, find all those, all those days and see you know, when it was that Jesus was, was, was appearing to His disciples and all and figure out the, you know, the fact that it was 40 days. And, and it really was. And then, of course, they were to wait, and they would wait a few more days until the day of Pentecost, of course, would be the day in which the Spirit would come upon them. But the key word in this passage that I want you to focus on this morning is the word seen. The word seen, S-E-E-N, in verse 3, to whom he also also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, by uh, being seen by them, being seen by them during 40 days. This, this word is used here to strengthen the focus of these infallible proofs. You see, eyewitness testimony was of, of utmost importance to people in those days as well as today. But of course, with so many high-tech uh, devices, you know, things can not be as they really seem. But eyewitness testimony in, in the days of Jesus was a, a, a of great importance to prove that things actually did happen. And so the fact that he mentions his word seen, what does he say? What he's saying is that he was indeed, that Jesus was indeed raised from the dead and that Jesus Christ was indeed real. He was seen. You see, the Greek word for seen is the word optonomai optonomai, which we get the word optometrist from. And out of that same root word, there comes another word, ophthalmia, which is the word that we get ophthalmologist from. And so it all has to do with the eyes. An ophthalmologist is, is an eye surgeon. Optometrist is one who, who helps and works on the eyes, an eye doctor, as it were. But literally, it means that his disciples truly eyeball Jesus. This is of great importance for us to see. They eyeballed him. They saw him. They, they, they stared at him. I mean, that's more literally, it's that we're staring at Jesus. Hey, wouldn't you? Especially when you, you had heard that he had, he had died and he told you he'd rise again, but you didn't believe him. And then all of a sudden, what happens? He's there in your midst and you're going. And you, know, you remember the cartoons where the eyes go boom, 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 boom? They were just staring at Jesus. They were eyeballing him. Some of them were even scrutinizing him. They were looking up and down, looking, making sure that's really him. Do you remember that there were times when Jesus appeared to his disciples? They didn't even recognize him the first time after he had risen from the dead. And eventually he would say something and they'd say, oh, it's the Lord. Now they were looking at him. They were scrutinizing him. They were looking for the scars. You know, they were doing everything. But Jesus was seen by them. And He invited them to touch Him. He, he invited them to, to, to be with Him, to, to know that it was Him. He ate with them. He, he, he spoke intimately to them. And that brings up another thing. They not only saw Him, but they heard Him. And one of those infallible proofs is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6, by a person who wasn't there, 
That person, Paul, we mentioned earlier. Paul writes in this letter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. In other words, many of them were still alive some 25 years later in Paul's day. Those who had seen Jesus of those 500, they had seen Him. Even Peter would write concerning these infallible proofs. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. That's, that's speaking directly certainly to what Peter, James, and John saw on the Mount of Transfiguration when they saw Jesus in His glory speaking to Moses and Elijah. But, you know, the very life of Jesus to the apostles after His resurrection, but, but even before, was a life of majesty. It was a life of the majesty of, of God in Christ. God with us. God among us. God in us, the hope of glory. They saw this and they said He was alive. Listen, the resurrection is one of the most provable things in all of history because of all the eyewitness testimony. All these people who go around saying, well, I don't believe that you know, Jesus rose from the dead. I, I, don't, you know, I, I don't want to believe. It's just that they don't want to believe. It's not that it didn't happen. It happened. It was seen. And it was recorded by many people. And, and, and the facts were not... Uh, in a, in a way that they could, could, could not be understood. It was clear. So if people, and the funny thing about it is people even in the church today will say, well, you know, we deny the, the, the virgin birth of Jesus. We deny all that Jesus rose from the dead. But, but, you know, the story is so nice, you know, what he did for us. Folks, he came to die and he came to rise again and he did. And he's alive today. And we have the proof of it in eyewitness testimony. That's why that's so important. For us to understand what Luke is saying to Theophilus, we they saw him. And Luke tells us that during those forty days, Jesus, through His Spirit, through the Spirit, had given commandments. Not only was He seen, but He even gave commandments. Certainly, one of those commandments was the Great Commission of Matthew chapter twenty-eight, verses nineteen and twenty. Go therefore, He said to His disciples, and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. And that's significant too, because Jesus says, I'll be with you. They weren't going to see Him, but He was going to be there with Him through His Spirit. That's why we have to also realize that the book of Acts is about Jesus still working in the church through His Spirit. But the book of Acts will reveal to us how His chosen apostles were enabled by the Holy Spirit to fulfill this great commission and in turn show us as well how we are to fulfill it until the coming of our Lord for us. That's another reason why this is an important book for us to study. Because it talks about the very power of the Holy Spirit that we need to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. And I hope and pray, of course, that we already have the Holy Spirit, that we've already been baptized in the Spirit, so that we are functioning as those who God has called in our day and age to bring forth the gospel to those who need it. But Jesus would, would also speak concerning the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. He didn't, as some New Age and Gnostic teachers like to believe, 
that Jesus taught during that time, strange and obscure doctrines, offering new revelations that have to be rediscovered in some mystical way. It's not what Jesus taught after He rose from the dead. He didn't rise from the dead and say, listen folks, gather together, I've got a few other new things to tell you. There were some things I learned in those three days in the, in the tomb. I'm going to bring forth the, you know, the, the, the tomb revelations. No. What did he do? He taught them the same substance and subject that he had taught them during his earthly ministry. What was it? The kingdom of God. What was the first thing that we see Jesus after his temptations doing? Preaching the kingdom of God. He was preaching the reign of God. He was preaching the very fact that he had come. The kingdom of God is among you. I've come. You know, it could be as simple as saying to us, dear children, remember that this is not your home. You see, we need to understand something that we, we, we go through problems and trials, troubles, troubles like this family that had to wake up to some pretty heavy news. We go through these things in this life. But Jesus came to preach the kingdom of God. And it's as if He's saying to us, remember that this isn't your home and this isn't your final resting place. Don't plant yourself here too deeply because before you know it, the world will pass away. I'm going to be with you through the tough times. I'm going to be with you through the trials. I'm going to be with you through the tribulations. I'm even going to be with you through the temptations of this life. When you falter, when you fail, I'll be with you. I'll be there to pick you up. I will be there. But I want you to look to me for your strength. And I want you to look to me for your wisdom in those times. And not to what you see with your eyes. I want you to look to me. That's how important the preaching of the kingdom of God is by Jesus to us today. He said, I will be with you to the very end of the age. I will be with you. We need that. We are not to be like those who have no hope or those who have some sense of hope, but the only hope that they have is to think, well, I hope that there's a heaven and I hope that the Lord is there, but right here and right now, I have nothing. Yes, you do. If you know Jesus Christ, you have Him with you. If you know Jesus Christ, you have His Spirit, you should have His Spirit fill, filling you and, and letting you know that He's not going to let you go no matter what you go through in this life. And He's going to take you through this life to where? To where you can be with Him forever. That's what this hope is all about. That's what this life is about. That's what the eternal life, the everlasting life that Jesus preached was all about. Listen to what He says in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. He says in verse 30, Now if God clothes the grass of the field which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven. Will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? Folks, we got people asking those questions today. Worried about, What am I going to eat? What am I going to do? What am I going to, where am I going to live? What am I going to wear? And we're not talking about the poor people who are actually wanting to know where their next meal is going to come from. He's speaking to people who knew where their next meal was going to come from. Yet they worried about it anyway. 
He says, for all these things the Gentiles seek. For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But notice what he says in verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things shall be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And you cannot separate the kingdom of God from His righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all the things you need shall be added to you. You have nothing to worry about, he says, if you trust in the Lord and if you trust in the kingdom that the Lord has preached. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient is for, its, uh, for the day is its own trouble. Seek first the kingdom. Jesus said, I'll be with you. I'm not going to leave you. With this in mind, Jesus gave His final instructions to His disciples in verses 4 and 5. I'm giving somewhat of a general overview of this passage. I'm going to go back a little bit next time and be a little bit more specific about certain things. But just follow along with me. Verse 4 says, And being assembled together with them. Uh, you know, the, the Greek actually implies that uh, they were actually at a meal together. And it says, Being assembled together with them, He commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, He said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Luke, before moving on, would cover some of the material from the end of the former account, the Gospel of Luke, by bringing up what the disciples were told to do by the Lord Jesus Himself. They were to wait for the promise of the Father. What was the promise of the Father? It was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit for service. Look at Luke chapter 24 for just a moment. Luke 24, verses 45 through 53. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. And then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem, or wait in the city of Jerusalem, until you are endued with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass, while he blessed them, that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. Two things. Luke ends the Gospel of Luke with the account of the ascension of Jesus Christ, which he will pick up again as we just noticed in, uh, as we'll notice here in chapter 1 of Acts. But in Luke chapter 24, the second thing is, you look at the very end of, of the Gospel of Luke and you see the word Amen. It is to say, truly it has been spoken, truly it has been said, Amen. There's a completion to the word uh, with the word Amen. If you look at the very end of the book of Acts, you realize that it doesn't end with the word Amen. Why? Because the story is still being written. That's where you and I come in. Just wanted to throw that in. That was free. Okay. Now we need to remember that in the Old Testament the Holy Spirit came upon certain individuals to empower them for the work that they were being called to do. We knew this in the life of Moses and Joshua and David, for example. But now the promise was and is to all who believe 
Not just to certain individuals, but to all who believe, which includes you and me. The promise is for us, and we don't have to go to Jerusalem to wait for it. The promise itself was prophesied by Joel in Joel chapter 2. We will see that this is something that, that Peter refers to when people are asking what is taking place. Peter refers to this particular prophecy. Joel chapter 2 verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And all on my, also on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days. And I will show wonders in the heaven and in the earth, or in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillar of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. While this happens on the day of Pentecost, which we will see when we get to chapter 2 of the book of Acts. But the, the Spirit is poured out, not just upon certain people, but upon all flesh. First of all, it says that here in Joel. But our understanding, of course, also is that the Spirit is poured out upon those who have come to believe and to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the John, now John the Baptist is mentioned here by Jesus and certainly there's a distinction being mentioned concerning the baptism of John and that of the Holy Spirit. But, but this baptism of the Holy Spirit was mentioned by John himself. So we, we see that there's a distinction in the types of baptism, but not a distinction between John and Jesus. For G John himself also spoke of the, this particular uh, outpouring or, or baptism of the Holy Spirit. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, for example... John the Baptist says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. In Mark chapter 1 verse 8, again, John the Baptist says, I indeed baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so the coming of the Holy Spirit was, uh, we're going to, deal with this a lot in the next few weeks, but, but for our understanding here today, the coming of the Holy Spirit was to unite all believers into one body and to give power for witness and to give power for service. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, Paul again speaks of this uh, particular uh, uh, understanding of the Spirit when he says, for by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. There is a unity of believers in the Spirit of God. But concerning John's baptism, and this is where we need to draw the distinction, concerning John's baptism, John was the baptizer, the water was the element, and the issue was repentance from sin. In regards to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is the baptizer, the Holy Spirit is the element, and the issue, the issue is love. The fruit of the Spirit. That's the issue. I want you to notice that I didn't say that the issue was tongues or any other gift that comes from the Holy Spirit. And we'll talk a lot about that too when the time comes. But the issue is love. Why? 
Because without love, all the other gifts are meaningless. Without love, all the other gifts have no meaning. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1-3. through A chapter that sits between two chapters that deal with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Chapters 12 and 14. Paul puts it right in the middle and he says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. And then Paul would go on to say what love was. Love is patient and kind. And so on and so forth. But that's the issue here. Is it about tongues or vocal gifts? It's about love. And then Luke records a final question of the disciples to Jesus before His ascension. Verse 6. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked Him, saying, Lord, will You at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Again, I'm going to come back to some of these things, but I just want to give you a general beginning to this book. But I'm sure that they had asked this question many times before. And on top of it all, they had asked based on the promise that was given by Jesus Himself. You see, Jesus gave a promise in Matthew 19 and verse 28. He said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Well, based on what Jesus said, we shouldn't be too hard on the disciples for asking about the political and the spiritual rebirth of Israel, because that was in their mindset, you see. Even today, many Christians are unclear and they don't understand God's prophetic plan. But, but, but these first century Jews grew up believing that their Messiah would come and He would establish God's kingdom on earth. Now they hadn't put it all together that Messiah first had to be rejected and had to suffer for the sins of men and die for the sins of men. They didn't understand the gap in the Lord's prophetic timing. And so the gap is being filled here in the book of Acts. That's another important uh, reason for the book of Acts. What is to take place until Messiah's second coming from heaven to establish His kingdom. That's what's taking place then and even now. So notice Jesus' response to them in verses 7 and 8. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in His own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to Me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, wasn't it wise? Wasn't it a wise thing for the Lord not to reveal the outline of His prophetic plan, which would span over the next 2,000 years? Wasn't it a wise thing that He did that? Wasn't it great that Jesus said, look, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to restore the kingdom, but I'm going to come back in 2,000 years. I mean, what would you say if you, if you knew that Jesus was going to come back in 2,000 years? Oh, man. You see, 
They weren't ready for it then. But Jesus is wise. It's just not for you to know the times. I want to give you power. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and you're going to be my witnesses. All right. And while you're my witnesses, keep looking up. Your redemption draws near. You can come at any moment. See how wise God is. Well, how would we feel? 2,000 years later, I'm not going to be around. But guess what? We are around. And the Lord could come at any moment. The fact of the matter is, the promise is still there. Do you have the power of the Holy Spirit in your life? He just warned them not to inquire into the aspects of the timing of the kingdom. At the same time, He didn't say that there was to be no restoration of the kingdom of Israel. There will be. We know that. But what he did reveal to them was to serve as the out, you know, what he revealed to them was to serve as the outline now for the whole book of Acts. Go back to verse 8. He says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. They would receive that power in chapter 2. They would be witnesses to Jerusalem in chapters 3 through 7. They would be witnesses to Judea and Samaria in chapters 8 through 12 and to the end of the earth from chapters 13 through 28 and beyond. Why? Because it hasn't ended there. Even today, the Holy Spirit is still working in the church. The real issue today, the real issue for us to touch today is that Jesus called us to be witnesses to Him everywhere that we are and everywhere that we go. My question to you this morning is, are we being witnesses in and through our lives on this earth? Are we being used by God to turn this world upside down or actually right side up for Him? Are we doing that? Two words are used in this passage of utmost importance. Two words. Power and witnesses. In the Greek... Dunamis and Martus. The word power in the Greek <coughs> is the word dunamis from which we get our English words dynamite and dynamic. The word witness is from the Greek word martus from which we get our English word for martyr. So we are then to do what? We are to receive dynamic and explosive power from the Holy Spirit. For what purpose? To die to ourselves and to live for and give testimony to the resurrection life of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That is what we are to witness. We are to be empowered by the Spirit. A dynamic, powerful, exploding power as it were. To be witnesses. Not martyrs in the, in the sense of, of, of just somebody just dying for a cause and that's it. But dying, giving our lives completely and totally to the mission of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, it's giving testimony to the fact that Jesus is alive. It is giving testimony to the fact that Jesus is real. It is a testimony to the fact that Jesus changes lives. It is a testimony to the fact that Jesus is coming again. And folks, Paul said it best, and I close with this as we come to the table of communion this morning. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. What is he saying? I've died. I've died. 
When he says, I've been crucified, that means I've died. I'm powerless, you see, in and of myself. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I am alive today because of the life of Jesus Christ. But I can say I'm a witness to the life of Christ because I no longer live. It is Christ who lives in me. I'm going to build upon all of these things in these last couple of verses and and continue on with that next time. But I, I encourage you today that as you receive the bread and the cup this morning, that you would pray as a believer in Jesus Christ. Pray and say, Lord, fill me this moment. Lord, if I've never asked you, if I... If I've never gone before you, Lord, just to, to, to fill me, to, to pour out your Spirit upon me, baptize me, whatever terminology you want to use. We're going to talk about that more. But, but Lord, just fill me now with your Holy Spirit. I want your power. I realize that whatever power I have is, is just that, my power, and it goes only so far. I need your power to be a witness for you. God has called each and every one of us who who claim and name the name of Christ as our Lord and Savior, called each and every one of us to receive this power. This is not something that, you know, we can pick and choose. We have that buffet mentality nowadays. Well, I want this, but I don't want that. No, you need this. You couldn't say, by the way, you couldn't say that Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit, so the Holy Spirit's already active in your life. We need His outpouring. We need His power. Maybe today you don't know Jesus, and I would encourage you. When you take that bread and cup, take it anyway. Take it. And say, Lord, forgive me of my sins. I repent of them. I turn from them. But I want want to be you, yours. Save me. Heal me. Let this bread be the first time that I ever realized that you died for me. Let this cup be the first time that I take it to realize that, that you shed your blood for my forgiveness. Each and every one of us has a purpose in being here today. God brought us here for a reason. We need to meet with Him today. Let's do that now. Let's pray. Father, I pray that You have Your way with us this morning. As we receive the bread and this cup, symbols of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, may it awaken us to our calling and to our purpose as your sons and daughters. Fill us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.